Tushpa was by no means an arrogant man. His rise to chieftain had not been easy. It had not been guaranteed. Tushpa was forced to contend with rivals and claimants. All of them were now ashes and corpses. He had to prove himself. During the great raid against the Phrygians, Tushpa led a pack of riders. They raided a number of villages and even attempted to join in the sacking of Gordian. He had been a noted leader back then, and years later he'd proven himself as the chief of the Western Cimmerians. When news came to him of a new Assyrian ruler, an untested man named Esarhaddon, Tushba knew it was his opportunity to lead the Cimmerians towards something greater. It would be vengeance. The memories of prior Assyrian invasions of the murders of innocent Cimmerians loomed large over Tushpa. And so he made the fateful command. From their base in Cilicia, they rode south and eastward into the lands of Assyria. For a time, they found victory after victory, pushing deeper and deeper into the enemy heartland. And then the Assyrian army met the Cimmerians with their full force. And that was when Tushba found himself under immense arrow fire. He roared at his riders, urging them to march forward. Several squads of horsemen fanned out in multiple directions. They would try to limit casualties by spreading out, and as they rode, they fired arrows into the Assyrian horde. They launched volley after volley after volley. They rode forward and swiftly reared around before turning back, firing another volley here and another one there. A few errant Assyrians rode forward and were quickly cut down. The vast majority of the Assyrian army began to falter and march backwards. Tushba gestured at several riders who then motioned to many others. This was the time to push on and force the Assyrians into a rout. He called into the air and rode forward. And then the Assyrian army opened up. Horsemen rode from the gaps. Tushba looked to his right, seeing one of his commanders falling off of his horse. An arrow pierced the man's lungs. Suddenly, Tushpa could hear cries and yells. Another man fell. A horse collapsed. Several others collided into one another. And then the enemy horsemen began to encircle them. Arrows flew in all directions. More men fell to the ground, embracing death. It was at this moment Tushpa screamed. He rode forward. A few of his closest comrades followed suit. Tushpa knew not who these riders were. They rode with such acumen and ferocity. They shot their arrows with such deftness and skill. These are the horsemen, the ones slaughtering Tushpa's men, were eerily similar to his own. Skiffe, Tushpa uttered, recalling the name of the great invaders who had long since displaced the Chimerians. Demons they were, monsters that hunted the Chimerian ancestors and stole their land ungodly beings that ruined them over and over again. And then, an arrow pierced Tushba's shoulder. And then another. And then Tushba fell to the ground, bleeding he roared into the eternal blue sky. The nightmare of the Cimmerians had rode from the steppes and crossed through the mountains. The end of the Cimmerians was nigh. 
and the Scythians entered the ancient Near East. Welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast, episode 11. Once again, it's been a while, and my bad on that. I'm in a new place right now, and I'm not really sure how the audio is going to sound, so forgive me on basically everything. But to compensate, we'll be talking about an interesting set of topics today, culminating in the near end of our Cimmerian sojourn. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Over the course of the last three episodes, we charted the rise of the Cimmerians, their migrations across the steppe in the Caucasus, and their political history in Anatolia and the ancient Near East. In the last episode, we dove into Cimmerian movements after the year 714 BCE. In the wake of the invasions by the Urations and the Assyrians, we hypothesized that the Cimmerians found themselves threatened, and so many chose to leave their pastures and migrate. This meant a retreat to the west into the land of the Anatolian Plateau. This placed the Cimmerians in a new land with new enemies. As such, from the 690s to the 680s, the Cimmerians raided the lands of the kingdom of Phrygia, and Greek sources correlate their invasions with the death of King Midas. In 679 BCE, the Cimmerians once again took to the offensive, trying to invade the lands of Assyria. The Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, was only two years into his rule, and it was a tenuous one at that. The Assyrian Empire had only just emerged from a disastrous civil war that ultimately led to Esarhaddon's ascension. As such, the Cimmerians likely thought that this was their opportunity to gain riches and even take vengeance on the Assyrians. Led by a chieftain named Tushpa, the Cimmerians attacked the Assyrians in a land called Hubushnu. However, Tushpa fell in battle and the Cimmerians were defeated. One Assyrian tablet refers to the event as a slaughter of the Cimmerians. Another Assyrian document recounts Esarhaddon's own thoughts. Quote, And Tushpa the Cimmerian, our barbarian whose home was afar off, I cut down with the sword in the land of Habushnu, together with all of his troops. Unquote. And that's where we last left off. In the wake of this battle, we can imagine that the remnant Cimmerians bitterly crossed back into Anatolia. At this point, the exact areas of Cimmerian occupation are unclear. We can probably assume that some Cimmerian tribes operated in Phrygia given recent activity there. The invasion of Assyria points to some Cimmerian habitation in Cilicia as well. However, none of this is really definitive, and I personally speculate that the Cimmerians at this point were operating as different tribal entities rather than as a unified people. Their geographic range would have been disparate and fluid, and unlikely to be defined by strict borders. In fact, the Encyclopedia Ironica reports to us that shortly after this battle, some Cimmerians could be seen in Assyrian armies. The Encyclopedia believes these Cimmerians to be slaves, likely taken from the Battle of 679. However, we also noted that in the last episode, some Cimmerian groups refused to migrate deeper into Anatolia, and those groups may have also joined the Assyrians as mercenaries. In any case, the next period of Cimmerian activity, at least until their invasion of Lydia around the 660s, is rather blurry. 
Some sources say that the Cimmerians entered an alliance with the Phrygians and aided them in an attack on the rival state of Melitene. This, of course, stands somewhat in contrast to other sources which claim that the Cimmerians conducted another raid against Phrygia in 677, which led to the ultimate destruction of the city of Gordian. Meanwhile, Professor Mark Shahin asserts that the Cimmerians allied with the Oration sometime in the mid-670s. This would supposedly result in an Oration and Cimmerian joint attack on the state of Sherpia. But to complicate things even further, an account from UNESCO's History of Civilizations tells us that in 672, a combined Cimmerian and Scythian force helped the Medes in a rebellion against the Assyrians. As you can see, there's a lot of potentially conflicting stories here, and I don't feel comfortable weaving a cohesive narrative based on these accounts. On one hand, it seems likely that the various Khmerian groups acted independently of one another, as we just discussed. This may be why we have such different recollections. One group could have lent support to the Phrygians, while another group may have been hell-bent on destroying them. Some Khmerians probably did act as mercenaries for the Urations, just as others worked for the Assyrians. Again, the decentralized nature of various step groups could lend itself to this varying number of interactions. However, I also think it's likely that some of these narratives are completely wrong. We talked about the fuzziness of dates throughout the last few episodes, and it's definitely apparent here. The 670s are full of contradictions and missing information and are somewhat of a black hole. So, I'm not going to dwell too much on this, and instead, let's push on. Given the flurry of activity mentioned before, we can at least assume that the Cimmerians were still active in raiding and looting various places across the Near East. A prayer attributed to the Assyrian leader Esarhaddon certainly points to this being the case. In this prayer, the Cimmerians are listed as just one of many enemies that were plaguing the Assyrian Empire. Quote, O Shamash, great lord whom I ask with true grace, answer me. From this day to the third day of this month, Iyar, to the eleventh month of Ab of this year, a period covering one hundred days and one hundred nights, in this time will Kashtarti with his soldiers, or the soldiers of the Cimmerians, or the soldiers of the Medes, or the soldiers of the Mani, or any enemy, as many as there are, have success with their plans. Will they, either by overthrow or might, or by contest, battle and war, seize the city of Kishasu? Unquote. And so, even if it isn't clear where the Cimmerians were exactly in the 670s, there remained a problem on the Assyrian frontier. As we enter the 660s and 650s, Cimmerian movements become a bit more clear for us. Several secondary sources, including Kunleif and Beckwith, both agree that the Cimmerians invaded the Kingdom of Lydia in 652, and that the Cimmerians were very active in that part of Anatolia for at least a decade prior. It would be here in Lydia where the Cimmerians would find great victories and terrible defeats that eventually set the stage for their decline. But before we get too deep into this series of events, let's now take a slight detour and talk about the Kingdom of Lydia. The Kingdom of Lydia was another Anatolian polity. It was located to the west of Phrygia and was considered to be a pretty wealthy area. 
Located along the plains of the Hermes River, the modern-day Gadiz River, Lydia boasted a significant agricultural sector, was known for its abundance in cattle and horses, and was rumored to have significant gold deposits. By this point in time, Greek colonies like that of Ephesus were entrenched in the far western reaches of Anatolia, and so the Lydians were also known to have had a decent array of trade relations. However, the Cambridge Ancient History asserts that the Lydians were not seafarers, and it seems that the Greek colonies may have blocked naval access to the Lydians. Given this proximity to the Greek colonies, Lydia would gain a notable reputation in the Hellenistic world. In fact, Herodotus recounts to us that the kingdom of Lydia had a long and legendary history. In his account, by the 670s, a man named Gygus had launched a coup and taken the Lydian throne. Gygus would be similar to Midas of Phrygia in many ways. A legendary king of Anatolia with relations to the Greeks, Gygus would also be someone with his own share of legends. There is one particular story that is fascinating. Though the following account is likely a historical and somewhat of a tangent, I found it so interesting that I just had to share it on the podcast. According to Herodotus, the dynasty that ruled before Gygus heralded from the lineage of the legendary Heracles. Led by a man named Candalus, Gygus at the time was merely a palace bodyguard. Gygus was also considered to be Candalus' best man, someone the king evidently favored. However, Herodotus reports that Candalus was someone who really loved his wife and also really loved to show her off. Once Candalus said to Gygus, quote, Gygus, I do not think that you credit me when I tell you about the beauty of my wife. Contrive then that you see her naked, unquote. Gygus refused his master's suggestion, arguing that it was amoral. Candalus, however, pushed on, and one night decided to lead Gygus into a room where Candalus's wife was naked. On one hand, Herodotus tells us that Gygus was shocked and shamed by the incident. However, Candalus's wife, who has continued to remain unnamed so far, was also outraged. According to Herodotus, quote, For among the Lydians, and indeed among the generality of the barbarians, for even a man to be seen naked is an occasion of great shame, unquote. The next day, Candalus's wife ordered Gygus to appear before her. He entered her chamber and was given an ultimatum, quote, Gygus, there are two roads before you. Either you must kill Candalus and take me in the kingship of the Lydians, or you must die straight away as you are, that you may not, in days to come, obey Candalus in everything, and look on what you ought not. For either he that contrived this must die, or you, who have viewed me naked and done what is not lawful." Unquote. Gaius was evidently frightened by the proposition, urging his king's wife to forego the plot and to forgive the wrong that had been done. She would not relent. Eventually, Gygus backed down and accepted the order. The two deliberated on details, and finally, Candalus's wife gave the order. Quote, the attack on him shall be made from the same place where he showed me to you naked, and it is when he is sleeping that you shall attack him. Unquote. She then provided Gygus with a dagger, and later that night, Gygus murdered his liege, Candalus. In a swift coup, Gygus the bodyguard ascended to the throne, becoming Gygus, 
king of Lydia. Though now he sat comfortably on the throne, Gygus was now beset by a number of challenges. To his west, Gygus was faced by a number of Greek colonies, and shortly into his reign, he is said to have invaded the lands of Miletus and Smyrna, capturing the city of Colophon. Now Herodotus makes the following claim, quote, However, no other great deed was done by him, although he reigned 38 years, and so we will pass him by with just such a mention as we have made, unquote. This quick throwaway discussion of Gygus fails to account for the king's full exploits. In 38 years, Gygus did much more than simply conquer a few Greek settlements. To bring things full circle, one of the other major challenges facing Gygus was the continued incursion of Cimmerian raiders, and it is here where we now turn to an interesting episode recounted in Assyrian documents. As we may remember, sometime in the 690s, or 670s depending on your source, the Cimmerians defeated the Phrygians and sacked the city of Gordian. Phrygia had neighbored the kingdom of Lydia, and Gygus appears to have become concerned by these events. With Phrygia now weakened and unable to act as a buffer, Cimmerian raiders probably started infringing upon Lydian territory. Small raids and lightning-fast attacks could have occurred on the Lydian eastern frontier. Gygus was faced with few options in dealing with the Cimmerian riders. Though he possessed a strong military, the Cimmerians were at their apex and seemed unstoppable. To some, it would take a miracle to prevent the nomadic riders from destroying Lydia. And so one night, a miracle came. Gygus had a vision. In this legendary account, Gygus had dreamt of a great empire to the south and east, one that could help the Lydians defeat the Cimmerians. Having no idea what this empire was, Gygus sent messengers in the general area, whereupon they met a delegation by none other than the Assyrian Empire. But you know, let me instead use the words of the Assyrian ruler himself. In a record left by Ashurbanipal, we are told the following, quote, Gygus, king of Lydia, of the other side of the sea, a distant place whose name the kings my father had not heard. Asher the god, my creator, caused to see my name in a dream. He told Gygus, lay hold of the feet of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, and conquer thy foes by calling upon his name. On the day that Gygus beheld his vision, he dispatched his messengers to bring greetings to me. An account of this vision, which he beheld, he sent to me by the hand of his messenger and made it known to me. From the day that he laid hold of my royal feet, he overcame by the help of Asher and Ishtar, the gods, my lords, the Cimmerians, who had been harassing the people of his land, who had not feared my fathers, nor had laid hold even of my royal feet, unquote. In the wake of this meeting, messengers were sent back and forth, and soon Gygus developed a strong relationship with Ashurbanipal. The timing of this couldn't have come at a better time. Sometime later that year, the Cimmerians invaded, and Assyrian assistance allowed the Lydians to achieve a strong victory. As Ashurbanipal recounts, quote, From among the chieftains of the Cimmerians whom Gygus had conquered, he shackled two chieftains, fetters of iron, manacles of iron, and sent them to me together with his rich gifts, unquote. And so it would seem like the Cimmerians were once more put into a corner, 
with this Assyrian-Lydian alliance acting as a major block toward any Cimmerian advancement. However, Gaius was not content to be a junior partner, and like many other ambitious rulers, he attempted to foster relations with other major powers. At some point between the 660s and 650s, Gaius tried to establish bilateral relations with the Egyptian pharaoh Symmeticus. It is unclear if Gaius intended this as an anti-Assyrian act or simply as an extension of his own international relations, but as we should know by now, the Assyrians valued loyalty over anything else, and so this single act incurred the wrath of Ashurbanipal. In the king's own words, quote, Gygus's messenger, whom he kept sending to me to bring greetings, he suddenly discontinued, because he did not heed the word of Asher, the god who created me, but trusted in his own strength and hardened his heart. He sent his force to the aid of the king of Egypt. I heard of it and prayed to Asher and Ishtar, saying, May his body be cast before his enemy, may his foes carry off his limbs, unquote. In 657 or 652, Ashurbanipal's curse appears to have come true as the Cimmerians once more invaded the Lydians from the land of Cappadocia. The Assyrians offered no assistance, and the lands of Lydia were likely burned and raided. The secondary sources are somewhat unclear on the exact timeline and sequence of events. The Encyclopedia Ironica tells us that Gygus and his kingdom survived the invasion on their own merit. The Cambridge Ancient History agrees with the sentiment telling us that the Lydians continued to send military support to the Egyptians two years later. The Cimmerians would then invade again in the 640s, and it would be here where the Cimmerians finally killed Gygus and destroyed the capital city of Sardis. Other sources such as Barry Kunlife connect this invasion in the 650s with the downfall of Gygus, and so once again we must tread carefully when assigning hard dates to these events. Whatever the case may be, this point is clear. The Assyrians withdrew their support, opening up Lydia to a Cimmerian invasion. The Cimmerians invaded and possibly invaded again. Gygus was killed, Sardis was ruined, and the Cimmerians were given free reign to rampage throughout western and southern Anatolia. Again, Ashurbanipal's records are quite clear on this. Quote, The Cimmerians whom Gygus had trodden underfoot invaded and overpowered the whole of his land, unquote. Gygus's son, Artis, ascended to the throne shortly after his father's death. Recognizing his own father's mistake, Artis sent messengers to the court of Ashurbanipal, seeking to restore the Lydian-Assyrian alliance. Ashurbanipal comments that Artis's messenger had pleaded for Assyrian support while bowing at Ashurbanipal's feet. This desperation is likely Assyrian propaganda, but I think there is a large hint of truth in this account. The Lydian capital had been sacked, and we know the Cimmerians were still active in Lydian territory during the reign of Artis. The Cimmerians probably continued to raid the Lydians, and during Artis's rule, we know of at least two concentrated invasions. The second of these invasions, which is dated to either 645 or 637, saw the emergence of a great coalition. The Cimmerians allied with a Thracian people known as the Treris and with an Anatolian people known as the Lycians. Sardis was once again sacked and looted, and Artis may have perished in the fighting. 
Herodotus then recounts to us that the Cimmerians pushed westward, invading the Greek colonies of Ionia and Aeolus, and possibly even destroying the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. There is a curious timeline division that we should consider. In this final invasion of Lydia, which ultimately led to the destruction of Sardis, we are presented with two options on who led the Cimmerians. One, a man named Tugdame, or two, his son named Sendakshitra. This is a really complicated subject, and I'm personally really excited for later historical groups that don't have nearly as much drama or baggage when it comes to dates. But we aren't there yet, so let me be brief. Sometime during Artis's reign around the 640s, the Cimmerians began to raid northwestern Assyria. The Cimmerians were led by a man named Tugdame, who the Assyrians called the king of the Saka and the Gudium. However, the Assyrians were able to broker an agreement of sorts, and Tugdame offered tribute to the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. Tugdame then broke this agreement not too long after, and once more the Cimmerians began to raid Assyria. In some sources, the Cimmerians even allied with the state of Tabal in anti-Assyrian operations. To quote Ashurbanipal again, quote, Tugdame, king of the Umanmanda, offspring of Tiamat, the image of the devil, disregarded the oath by the gods by which he agreed not to do evil against, not to overstep the boundaries of my land, and he was not in awe of thy honored name. To magnify thy sovereignty in the might of thy godhead, I overthrew him, according to thy divine message, which thou didst send, saying, I will destroy his power. Sanakshtra, the son, offspring of his loins, they had put in his place, unquote. In reality, the Assyrians likely did mount a defense against Cimmerian raids, but Assyrian military might was not what led to the end of Tugdame. Illness was. Sanakshatra then took his father's place and continued to lead military operations. And here we must go back to the second invasion of Lydia during the reign of Artis. Essentially, the timeline could be as follows. Tugdame led the Cimmerians in two invasions of Lydia against Artis. Tugdame may have developed relations with the Lycians and the Treris to create this coalition. Then, having accomplished the destruction of Sardis, Tugdame led the Cimmerians to Cilicia and began to raid the Assyrians. Then the story we just heard occurs. The other option is thus. After killing Gygus, Tugdame led the Cimmerians into Cilicia. From there, they raided Assyria, began to offer tribute, and then reneged on the treaty. Tugdame then perishes from illness, and Sandakshatra, perhaps fearing Assyrian might, moved back to Lydia and invaded the lands of Artis with assistance from the Lycians and the Treris. So those are our two options. I don't think either of these options affect our narrative, but I wanted to give both academic perspectives before moving on. The Cimmerians continued on with their raids. If we assume 637 BCE to be the second invasion under the reign of Artis, then Artis would then be succeeded by his son, Sadiates. Sadiates would not reign long. The Cambridge Ancient History gives Sadiates five years to his rule. Other sources only give him two. 
In such times, said Yates is known to have conducted a series of raids against a people known as the Milicians, but he is otherwise unnoteworthy. The only other point to make is that some speculate Sadyatis to have perished in a Cimmerian raid. And now, we reach closer to the end of the Cimmerians. Throughout the episode, the Cimmerians have really felt like a menace, devastating many of the Near Eastern polities and participating in lightning-fast raids. What I haven't covered yet are the movements of the Scythians. Yes, we noted that some Scythians participated in a few battles against the Cimmerians, but now a concentrated population of Scythian riders were manifesting in the ancient Near East. Mattius, son of the Scythian chief Bartuta, was waiting in the distance for his own opportunities. In fact, Mattius and the Scythians were off fighting the Medes, and will visit their perspectives soon. But now... The Scythians were very aware of Cimmerian activity. At the same time, the death of Sadiates opened the door for his own son, Alietes. Alietes would become one of the greatest rulers in Lydian history. He would subdue the western Greek colonies, he would become master over large swaths of Phrygia, he would produce some of the earliest coins in recorded history, and he would play a decisive role in ending the Cimmerian menace once and for all. It would be Alietes and Mattius, Lydian and Scythian, who would finally put an end to the Cimmerians. But that is for another time. Instead, I want to take the remainder of this episode to quickly recap the events we just mentioned. Given the disparate timelines and differing dates, I know this was probably harder to follow than other episodes, and so to accommodate this, I'll offer my own sequence of events. Remember, dates are pretty fuzzy, and some events probably did happen at other points and in different orders. I just want to put things in some sort of sequence so that we have an understanding of how these individual events will come together in the next episode. We started this episode by assessing the Cimmerian situation after their failed invasion of Assyria in 679. Between 679 to the mid-660s, our understanding of Cimmerian history is unclear. Different authors cite different events at different times, and to my mind, none of that is conclusive and should be taken as speculation. Instead, the next key event comes in the mid-660s when Gygus of Lydia sends envoys to the Assyrian ruler Ashurbanipal. The Cimmerians had probably threatened the Lydians by this point through a series of raids, and the Lydians and the Assyrians soon developed an anti-Cimmerian agreement. However, Gygus' support for the Egyptians eventually led to the end of this alliance. In 657 or 652, the Cimmerians invaded, devastated the city of Sardis, and may have killed Gygus. The Cimmerians invaded once more in 644. There remains debate on whether Gygus perished in this invasion or if this represented the first incursion under Gygus' son, Artis. A final invasion in 637 led to the destruction of Sardis and possibly the death of Artis. Sometime before this invasion, or shortly after, the Cimmerians moved into Cilicia and engaged in diplomatic relations with the Assyrians. Again, not really sure which is the case. And that, my friends, is the timeline we examined. I won't lie, it was confusing for me as well, and I'm certain I made mistakes in trying to piece this together. As always, please send me any corrections and other feedback via Twitter or my email. 
But with all of that said, I think we're done here. Next time, we actually, legitimately, finally get to the end of the Chimerians. The Scythians, the Lydians, the Assyrians, and other powers would conspire together to oust the people of Chimeria. And then, they will be no more. So tune in next time, and I'll see every one of you on the desolate grasses of the Anatolian Plateau.